Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where author Mark O'Neill introduces me to two heroes of China, Wu Ying, who loved antiques and would be tasked with taking a train of treasures from the Forbidden City, and his son Wu Zuguang, a Chinese playwright, film director and social critic. Both men were intellectuals and both paid for being honest. Well, it was the 1980s, we were in Beijing, and the reform process had just started, and most people in China were very nervous to meet foreigners, especially foreign reporters. Just like today, there are many things going on. We foreign journalists understood very little about what was going on, and we were eager to get some explanation, analysis, to understand better what was going on. So we had the good fortune to meet Mr. Wu Zuguang, who is an extremely distinguished author and playwright, and he was willing to receive us in his house and willing to have a proper discussion about the issues of the time. And what I remember about him was that he spoke honestly and directly. He didn't dodge any questions. He was willing to criticize the government but in an intelligent manner, not in an ideological manner. And as we were talking to him, I looked behind him, and there was his wife sitting in a wheelchair. And subsequently, I learned more about him and more about his wife, and we will be speaking about them today. So you meet Wu Zuguang in the 1980s along with his wife. Now, Wu Zuguang was the first of 15 children, and he was born in April 1917. Who was his father? Now, his father was a man called Wu Ying, and Mr. Wu Ying was, was born in the 1890s, and he was from a very distinguished family in Changzhou, in Jiangsu, and in his family there were many distinguished officials and scholars. Well, in, in, in the Qing dynasty, scholars and officials were the same, because in order to become an official, you had to pass all sorts of exams and had to become very educated in the Chinese classics. So Mr. Wu belonged to this family. And, of course, at the end of the 19th century, China was in this very extraordinary period of uh, the government. It was in great decline. There was modernization movements going on everywhere. And because his family was very educated and enlightened, his father was very much part of the modernization movement. And he sent his son, Wu Ying, to a school which offered foreign languages. And there were very few in China at that time, but he went to one. And he was supposed to go and study in the UK, but his father died. So according to the Chinese tradition at that time, you know, if your father dies, you must remain in mourning for three years. So he wasn't able to leave China. So he moved to Beijing and he went to stay with his uncle. And his uncle was an even more important person in the Chinese system. He was a high official of the Qing dynasty. And then when the Republic of China was formed in 1911, he had very senior positions there. And Wu Ying worked briefly as a teacher in a school, teaching English for one year, but he fell out after an argument with the principal. So then he goes back to Beijing and stays with the uncle. And the uncle gets him a job with the city government, and he's only in his 20s. But remember, the dynasty has just changed. So the people who worked with the dynasty before, many of them have been discredited, they've lost their jobs. You need to have people in these positions and the young Wu Ying was well-educated and very smart, and so he was given an important job in the, in the Beijing city government. One of his responsibilities concerns the imperial palace. Now, in 1911, the dynasty was overthrown, but unlike France, Russia and England, 
the Chinese did not execute their monarch. Not only that, they allowed him to stay in the same place that he'd lived before. So this is Emperor Puyi? Yeah, I mean, it's really quite extraordinary. You overthrow the dynasty, and you might say that the least you can do is get him to leave the palace, or even better, go abroad. But the extraordinary thing was he was allowed to stay and he was allowed to stay in the palace. And the early years of the Republic of China in 1911 were not at all stable. The new government was not strong. It didn't have enough money. It didn't have military force. And there was the former emperor staying in the palace. And many people, especially those who'd worked with him before, wanted to bring him back to office, restore the emperor. Now, Wu Ying and the people who thought like him, the reformists realized that this was a risk. So they argued that the emperor had to be expelled from the palace, otherwise a restoration was possible. And the other thing that was happening was the the emperor had a very generous allowance from the government, but it wasn't enough. Can you imagine he had this huge household, he he had a wife, he had all the concubines, he had the eunuchs, huge numbers of people. And so to subsidize the lifestyle in the palace, he started to sell the treasures from the palace. So there were two things going on. One was the fear that he would be restored and the dynasty would come back. The second was that the treasures of the palace were being sold. So Wu Ying and people like him said, we have to expel the emperor from the palace and we have to preserve all the pieces that are in there. So finally, in 1924, the warlord of Beijing at the time, Feng Yuxiang, agreed with this. And so the decision was taken to remove the emperor and to turn the uh, palace into a museum. And this is where Wu Ying plays a very important role because after the expulsion of the emperor... Where did the emperor get expelled to? Well, it was, it was no hardship. He was given a very nice house which had belonged to a member of the imperial family in Beijing. So he, he couldn't live in as lavish a way as he did before, but he still had this very good allowance. So after he's expelled, the first thing they have to do is make an inventory of the things in the palace. And this has never been done before. Nobody knew how many pieces there were. And as you know, the, the palace in Beijing is built of wood. So you cannot have any fires because they feared if there was a fire, they would set light to the buildings. So this inventory was done in the winter of 1924, early 1925, but no fires could be used. So can you imagine you are, you are one of these specialists walking around the palace, zero degrees, minus 10 degrees. So in the Forbidden City, what did people do? Just wear lots and lots of layers of clothing? Yes. Now, for Wu Ying himself... Involvement in this project was the most happy thing that he could possibly do. He was completely 100% devoted to Chinese culture. He loved all kinds of Chinese art. So calligraphy, sculptures, bronzes, porcelain, lacquerware. I mean, he just adored it. And he loved these items so much that he spent all his money on buying them. So he used to go to Liu Lichang, which was the main antique market of Beijing, and he used to buy items that he liked. And as you mentioned, he had 15 children, of whom 11 reached adulthood. So these antiques that he bought were just for him. His day job is doing the inventory for the palace. He gets 
loves this uh, the involvement with these items, that then is also uh, increasing his love for for antiques generally, and he's increasing. And now he's going off to buy them for his own home. Yes. So the home fills up with antiques, and what happens at the Chinese New Year is the creditors come, because what you're supposed to do in China is you're supposed to pay your debts before the start of the new year. In other words, you sort of clear up everything of the old year and you start the new year. So, so in the last four days of the old year in the lunar calendar, <laughs> the creditors from the shops <laughs> arrive at the Wu household. And Mrs. Wu gives them tea and biscuits, and they're saying, well, <laughs> your husband <laughs> owes this for these items he's bought. And so, yes, Mrs. Wu becomes extremely angry because, as you can imagine, running a house with 15 children, well, 11 survived, 11 children. So generally were Chinese families really large at that time? Large, but not so large, and many Chinese people of his rank would have had concubines. So maybe only four or five children in the main family, but uh, maybe other children with concubines. But in this respect, he was very faithful. He only had the wife, the one family. The Palace Museum opens on October 10th, which is National Day in 1925, and one of Wu's close friends becomes the director. So his involvement with the palace becomes even more in- intense, it becomes his full-time job. He's not working with the city government anymore. And he's extremely happy to do this. And then the Japanese occupy Manchuria in 1931. The Japanese army encroaches onto northern China. And the palace museum directors decide that the Japanese are going to invade Beijing. The Chinese army cannot stop them. And therefore they must remove some of the treasures in advance to prevent the Japanese taking them. So this is the decision taken by the directors. So someone has to be found to take this mission, to be in charge of taking this first shipment. So the director decides that Wu Ying is the man. I mean, he's a senior official of the palace. He has complete confidence in him. Um, So he goes to ask him to do this. And Wu Ying refuses because it's too heavy a responsibility. If anything happens to any of the pieces, if there's a fire, if there's a burglary, if there's a robbery, if there's an accident and pieces are lost or pieces are stolen, he is responsible. So he doesn't want to do this. And his wife is also adamantly opposed to his doing it because she's afraid of what will happen once he leaves Beijing on the train with the pieces. She's at home with this large family. She's very nervous. So she says to him, you've got to stay here and look after us and carry on working in Beijing. But the director comes to see him again and uses all his powers of persuasion. They've worked together for a long time. This is your patriotic duty, please. You're the only person available to do this. So finally he agrees. The operation is all done in the middle of the night because they want to prevent Beijing people from knowing that this is going on. I mean, why are you evacuating the artworks but not the people if it's so dangerous? What about us? So it's all done in the middle of the night, and there's soldiers with machine guns on each carriage roof. There are soldiers with guns on the entrances at each end, and the train pulls off, and there's one carriage where Wu Ying and his colleagues are. And there's a group of bandits in Suzhou, which is on the way. They have heard that this is going to happen. 
So a thousand bandits are preparing in Suzhou to ambush the train. So Wu Ying is extremely nervous. But fortunately, the armaments on the train were sufficiently forbidding that the bandits decided it would not be worth it. They would lose too many men, so they didn't ambush the train. Oh, wow, that's a good piece of luck. Yeah, so Wu Ying said they were so relieved. (laughs) Got through Suzhou and nothing had happened. They were expecting an ambush, but it didn't happen. So they reach Nanjing, and the the government, the KMT government, hasn't decided where the pieces should finally go. One group says they should go to Luoyang or Xi'an, which is under KMT control, and another group says they should go to Shanghai, which is, of course, under foreign control, but there are much better facilities for keeping the pieces. So there's two weeks in Nanjing, in Nanjing Railway Yard. So finally the decision is they go to Shanghai. These items, um, some of them do end up in Taiwan, of course, at uh, the Palace Museum. Uh, Is it the majority of these items? No, no, only a small amount. The point is Mr Wu's involvement with the Palace Museum then comes to an end two years later because, unfortunately, someone within the KMT government, a senior official, doesn't like the director nor Mr Wu Ying and it makes allegations against them. And this is a very powerful person in the Kuomintang who makes these allegations. And Mr Wu Ying and the director deny them completely, but the man is so powerful that the director feels he has to leave, resign, and he's so nervous that he flees to Shanghai and lives in the French concession, which is you're out of the, the arm of the Chinese justice there. But Mr. Wu Ying uh, resigns too. So this is very, very sad for him personally because this is the job of his life. He then becomes a regular official again in the government. So firstly, he's in Nanjing and then he goes to Chongqing in the war and he's in the Ministry of Defence. But this is not really a job for which he's suited and he's... Like his son, he suffers from telling the truth and he can't deal with people he doesn't like. Well, in the Chinese bureaucracy, just like in any bureaucracy, <laughs> those are two things you can't do. You can't say the truth and you have to put up with people you don't like, but he, he couldn't do it. After the war, Wu Ying goes back to Nanjing and then after the communists take over, he goes to Shanghai and he has a stroke. He loses the use of half of his body. And he finally ends up with his son, Wu Zuguang, in Beijing in a large courtyard house. And he dies in Beijing uh, in the 1950s. But after having donated 241 of his favourite pieces to the Palace Museum. Oh, really? So that actually is a very poetic way for him to end his life. And then in the 1980s, you get to know his son. Well, let's run the clock back a little and speak about Mr. Wu Zuguang and his youth. So he's the first of these 15 children. So he's Wu Ying's eldest son. Yeah. So he's born in Beijing. In 1917. Yeah. So this is the time when his father is working in the Beijing government in the Palace Museum. So the family has a good standard of life. And Mr. Wu Zuguang is a very eager intellectual. He reads all sorts of books. And Beijing then is a city which is completely unrecognisable from what you see today. It was one to two-storey buildings, tea shops, opera houses. Beijing opera would go on for several days. And it perfectly suited Wu Zuguang. He was 100% intellectual. He loved writing. He went to the Sino-French University for one year. And then he was invited to go to Nanjing, where the first drama school had been set up. 
and he was to be the secretary to the director of this drama school because he liked drama a lot. So he went to this drama school in 1936. But 1937, the, uh, the all-out war of Japan began, so he couldn't go back to Beijing. So he remained in Nanjing, and then he went with his father and the rest of the family to Chongqing, and that's how they passed the war. And Wu Zuguang made a name for himself as a playwright, and he wrote um, anti-Japanese plays. So these are plays about people who oppose Japan. His plays were of high quality. They weren't simply propaganda pieces. They were very well-written, well-crafted plays. So as a young man, he became well-known. And after the war, he went to Shanghai and was the editor of a magazine. And he knew Zhou Enlai, and Zhou Enlai gave him a poem of Chairman Mao. Zhou Enlai. Of Zhou Enlai, the man who later became the Prime Minister of China under the Communists, and was also an intellectual, and Wu Zhuguan knew him. So when he was editing this magazine, Zhou Enlai gives him this poem by Mao. At this time, Mao is not known to the general Chinese public. Of course, he's very well known to his supporters. He's very well known to the secret police of the nationalists and the nationalist army, but to the public as a whole, he's not well known. So Wu Zhuguang published this poem in his magazine because he thinks it's a good poem and the author is interesting. But the Kuomintang government is enraged about this. And he's also written some works which the KMT government interpret as attacks on the president. So he's tipped off that he's going to be arrested, so he escapes to Hong Kong. And in Hong Kong, he becomes a film director, and he makes the first colour film in Hong Kong. Oh, really? Yes, it's based on one of his own compositions. And he has a very good life in Hong Kong. So what was the name of the film? It's called Soul of the Nation. Soul of the Nation. So he earns a good salary. He marries a film actress from Shanghai. So then the communists win the Civil War. And the question for Wu Zuguang, as the question is for everyone who's not in the mainland, is what do I do now? Anyway, Wu Zuguang decided to go back to the mainland because thousands of Chinese felt a great optimism that finally China was a united country, no more war, and that a new country was going to be built. Wu goes from Hong Kong to Beijing with his big salary in his pocket. It's enough for him to buy a big courtyard home in Beijing. And then he reports for work. He wants to be a writer. Well, that's what he is. Writer of plays, writer of books, writer of novels. But things have changed. We're now in a communist state. It's not for you to choose your employment. So they tell him he's going to be a film director. So he has no choice. So the first eight years of the communist period are good years for him. He knows Zhou Enlai, as we mentioned. He divorces this Shanghai actress whom he married before, and he meets this very beautiful actress called Xin Fengxia. And she was the top actress of the Hebei Opera, and she was renowned as a beauty. Everybody wanted to marry her. But she's, she was from a very modest family. She was barely literate. And many of Wu's uh, associates said that she, he shouldn't marry her because she wasn't suitable. She was too low class. But love prevailed, and it was a very, very happy marriage. And everything is fine until 1957, and then we have the anti-rightist movement. And the slogan of Ma was to lure the snakes out of the holes. So meetings were held, and intellectuals were invited to come to the meetings, and to say what they thought of the government and what they thought of the party. 
And Xin Feng Xia knew the real purpose of these meetings. So she said to her husband, don't go, and if you go, say nothing. Just be present and then come, come home. This is a trap. But Wu Zuguang didn't believe her. He goes to the meetings and he speaks very forthrightly. He says the cultural system in communist China is not good because it's controlled by people with no knowledge and no experience of this field. Peasants from the countryside, former PLA officers, people with no knowledge of the cultural life. And we shouldn't have this, you know, culture should be controlled by people knowledgeable about it, just as we, in a factory, a person makes steel is someone who knows how to make steel. And for this, he is severely punished, because that's to criticize the party. So he's sent off to Heilongjiang, the furthest north province of China, to a state farm, minus 30 degrees in the winter. And he stays there for three years. So he would have been in sort of re-education through labor camp? Or? Yes. But not only him, I mean, thousands of intellectuals were trapped. In freezing conditions. Yes, and the intellectuals were sent to these, intentionally sent to these difficult places to re-educate them. And what's happening to his wife? She had been the leading star of the Hebei opera, Xin Feng Xia, and, and what's happening to her in this period? Well, she's put under enormous pressure to divorce him because, you see, her class background is perfect. She's from a very poor family, so in the communists scheme of things, she's from a good background. So uh, many people urge her to divorce her rightist husband and to marry someone else who is from the correct class background with the correct thinking. But she refuses to divorce him and she cites the characters she plays in her operas because many of the operas are historical stories and in these historical stories the wife is a model human being. So the husband is a soldier who goes to fight wars for 20 or 30 years or is imprisoned by the emperor for 20 or 30 years. But the wife waits loyally for him to come back and she doesn't take lovers, she doesn't marry someone else. And these women are celebrated in these operas. So she, <laughs> she, she refers to these people, these heroines, as her models. So she waits for him and she suffers by not divorcing him. How do they make her suffer? Well, she has to attend study sessions. She has to do physical labour. So she's still going on as an actress, but she's not able to devote her full time to that. Now, when you met Mr Wu in the 1980s, did he refer back to this? We met many intellectuals in Beijing, and many of them had been exiled from Beijing, both during this period and in the Cultural Revolution. And I found that they had made a decision to commit this to the past, perhaps like our relatives who'd been in the war, this was a very difficult experience and some people had died as a result, some people had lost their mind, but they had survived and come back and the life that Mr Wu had in the 80s was a good life, comfortable, he was able to write and meet people. So they put it behind them and they didn't speak about it. But there's also a political reason not to do it because the, especially the anti-rightist movement is not something for public debate in China because Deng Xiaoping was one of the main architects. So you cannot publicly attack the anti-rightist movement because if you do, you're implicitly attacking Deng Xiaoping. So it's also smart of him not to speak about it. And so he's back to Beijing in 1960, but then we have Cultural Revolution, 1966, 
and the whole thing happens again. He and his wife are both subject to study sessions, physical labour. His wife is sent to work on building these anti-bomb shelters below the ground in Beijing. Her health deteriorates. She goes to hospital, she's misdiagnosed, and she ends up in the wheelchair. In the Cultural Revolution, Mr Wu also is not able to work as a writer or as a playwright or as a film director. Um, his house is ransacked, the Red Guard steal items from his house. So only in 1980 is finally the nightmare comes to an end and they are able to go back to their house and start a normal life again. When did you meet him? So we met him in the mid-80s and the, the reason we went to see him was that there was a campaign against bourgeois liberalism had just been launched by the government. And we were completely mystified as to what this was about and what was the purpose of it and what was the target of it. And, and, you know, Chinese politics is very mysterious. People don't say what they mean. There are many targets that are not publicly stated. So to understand what's going on, you have to try to seek the advice and the knowledge of experts. So we went to see him. And he was critical of it because he said uh, China had just started on the reform process and China had made so many mistakes as regards its intellectuals and now was the time to liberalise and to allow intellectuals to fulfil their role in society. So he was willing to go on the record and criticise what the government was doing. So you get to know him in the mid-1980s. Now, what was his... I mean, obviously he had a great love of China, as his father had had, and there a great deal of loyalty to the country. What was... Uh, was he fairly ambivalent about the uh, Communist Party? Well, uh, as we have seen, you know, he was a rightist, he was punished in the Cultural Revolution, so obviously he couldn't possibly join the party. But in 1980, the leadership decided to invite him to join because the reform process had, had begun. They wanted to turn over a new leaf. So they sent a very senior official called Hu Chiamu to see him because they were afraid he wouldn't agree after all he'd been through. So he lived in an apartment building and there was no lift. So Mr. Hu leaps two steps at a time and goes to see Mr. Wu and invites him to join the party. And he's not sure how Mr. Wu is going to answer because Mr. Wu has suffered so much at the hands of the party. But Mr. Wu takes a very pragmatic view, which is that the Communist Party is in power and it's, it's better to be inside than outside. So he agrees. I mean, not with enthusiasm, but just as a kind of practical thing. And his wife is also allowed to join. But during the 80s, he criticises the party at various junctures. So the anti-bourgeois... Liberalism was one. The firing of Hu Yaobang was another. He also supported the students in 1989, or I should say supported their objectives. So in 1987, the party leadership decided to expel him from the party. So Mr. <laughs> Mr. Hu Chamu was also asked to visit him. So back he goes to the apartment building, bounds up the stairs, gets into the door, and his mission that day is to persuade Mr. Wu to leave by himself. Because if he resigns, then they don't have to expel him. Mr. Wu is quite pragmatic again and decides, yes, it would be better to resign than to be expelled. But I think the story tells us the sort of Kafka nature of this whole episode. When you look back at the lives of Wu Zuguang and his father Wu Ying, 
What's your historical assessment of them both? Well, I think both are heroic figures, absolutely heroic figures, because they were 100% intellectuals who were devoted to Chinese art, Chinese literature, Chinese traditions but in a modernized context, and both of them gave their life for this mission of safeguarding and improving and creating art and literature for China. Unfortunately for both of them, they lived through periods of great political, military instability and suffered greatly as a result. But I think the memory of both of them should be positive, very heroic figures who spoke the truth, wrote the truth, despite all the hypocrisy and the lies around them. They just told things as, as they were. And that is the world of intellectual, not just in China, but in anywhere. My thanks to author Mark O'Neill talking there on the lives of father and son Wu Ying and Wu Zuguang. Mark is the author of The Miraculous History of China's Two Palace Museums. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.